Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Investment Editor at FT Advisor. Today we're discussing the question of what constitutes a defensive portfolio in the present time of high inflation, high market volatility and an uncertain interest rate environment. Our guests today are Ian Barnes, Chief Investment Officer at NetWealth, David Jane, Multi-Asset Fund Manager at Premier Mighton, and Ben Gutteridge, Director of the Model Portfolio Service at Invesco. Good morning and thank you all for joining me. <clears throat> David Jane from Premier Mighton, given how volatile gilts and other government bonds have been in recent years, to your mind, do they still qualify as a defensive asset class? I know that one of the products you run has defensive or cautious in the name. Does that have gilts in it? It's a very, very good question to start on, actually, David, because um, the belief that, that that gilts or government bonds in general were low risk was, was always somewhat fallacious anyway. You were taking a huge amount of duration risk in bonds over the last 20 years. It just happened to work in your favour as long-term bond yields fell. And so investors thought, oh, these are very low risk and also very high returns. And it was a very naive point of view, but one that, that became very prevalent, hence the rise of the 60-40 sort of strategies. When thinking about low risk today, you really want to be thinking about low volatility, i.e. low duration in your bond portfolios. And actually there, you can, you know, if you're in short dated gilts, you can get a yield pickup on on cash. If you're in short dated government bonds, you can get a further yield pickup. So there is tremendous opportunity in the bond market, probably more in corporates than than, than governments, but if you sit at the short end. And Ben Guttridge from Invesco, how do you think about the, the question of government bonds in portfolios right now? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, uh, it, it is a, a pertinent question because these diversifying assets have just been so dreadful, haven't they? You know, equities, when equities have struggled, the, you know, the bond market hasn't sort of bailed you out. But look, I think as far as government bonds are concerned, I still think they're a great hedge against growth disappointments. You know, we've seen bond yields move up, uh, the acceleration in, in bond yields moving higher over sort of third quarter since the, since the summer. And that's chimed actually with better than expected growth outcomes. So I think, you know, going forward, if growth is resilient and inflation remains elevated, then, you know, yields might move sort of sideways, bonds might be a bit pedestrian. But if you do get that growth shock, if you do get that recession at some stage in 2024, I would have thought long-dated government bonds are going to be a really useful asset in, in portfolios. Thank you. Ian, I guess that was the, uh, the challenge that multi-asset investors or portfolio constructors had in 2022. Bonds and equities moved in sort of the same downward direction. But indeed, even in the years prior to that, they moved in the same direction. But that was up, so nobody cared, right? Um, but... Where are, where are we now? If, if they're going to be showing signs of correlation, are they, are they defensive? Or if they're not going to show signs of correlation, to, to Ben's point, do they count as defensive? Yeah, um, I think that there are certainly different environments when you can imagine that they're still going to provide some defensive support to, uh, to a broader portfolio. I think you have to think about what the drivers of the volatility have been for bonds in the past couple of years. So certainly that um, uptick in inflation and and uh, and the shock of whether we're moving into a new regime in terms of inflationary expectations. 
once that has been sort of um, uh, addressed by central banks by lifting interest rates higher, the concern more recently has moved over into um, into the levels of debt that are out there that are affecting the the sort of the, the quality of all different types of uh, of government bonds. And I think the the way that they behave uh, in the future is going to depend slightly on what the growth profile is going to look like as we, as, as we move out of the inflationary shock period and then think about what's next. Thank you. And Ian, we'll, we'll stick with you for the next question. In that world of higher bond yields, even at the shorter end of the curve, what role, if any, do alternative assets play in portfolios? There, there de- definitely seem to be uh, a range of alternative investment trusts, but alternatives generally that became very popular in the era of low bond yields. But does one need alternatives if bonds and equities become inversely correlated again? Um, yeah, so I, I think um, I think you've got to be again quite careful of, as as to what you're talking about with with alternative assets because it covers quite a wide range of um, of, of different exposures. Um, we've always stuck quite closely to um, a need for daily liquidity. And so if you're looking for alternatives that are trying to embed some form of illiquidity premium into their returns, then that becomes a bit more challenging. A lot of alternatives I think people have discovered are, have really just been a way of um, transforming a combination of, of illiquidity and sensitivity to rates. So they've they've been hit equally as difficult. So I think you need to think about what are the ultimately going to be the drivers of of, uh, of future returns. Thank you. Um, David, as, as Ian mentioned, there's, I guess, no standard definition of, of an alternative um, asset, but as a multi-asset investor, how do you think about them? And do you think they have a, a role to play if short-dated govies are offering us 5%? I, I sort of um, broadly disagree with the concept of alternatives, actually. I, I think Ultimately, there are there is an ownership of an asset, or there's a um, a, la- a loan towards an asset, and there isn't really much else available in the market. So you're dealing with equities, property, and fixed income, and everything that's called alternative is typically one of those assets repackaged in a way to look attractive to marketing departments. And um, and and you know, like you said, you know, there may be an illiquidity premium or it may sit at some extreme end of one of those asset classes and therefore not be recognisable as what it truly is. But but generally, they're a lending vehicle or an ownership vehicle. And therefore, they will all be priced off that risk-free rate at the end of the day, be it the long bond or the short bond, whichever you want to pick. So um, I think, you know, buyer beware you know, you're generally being subject to, to, to somebody's marketing strategy to make some something look like something it isn't. And so we need to recognise that. And we need to recognise that ultimately all assets are priced off government bond yields and government bond yields are to a degree a function of long-term nominal growth expectations. And so expecting some magic diversification benefit from owning something because it's been repackaged some way is not something I'm, I'm a great fan of. I think you should deal with reality and, and get on with it. Thank you. And um, Ben, within the model portfolios at Invesco, is there an al- a dedicated alternatives bucket? If so, what's in it? Um, and what sort of allocations? 
Well, we do have a dedicated alternatives bucket. Um, <clears throat> what it's populated with, to echo sort of some of uh, Ian's points, aren't necessarily the ones that we would uh, ideally reach for because we can't harness that illiquidity premium. I mean, you think about like what a great alternative asset at the moment would be, it would be like sort of private credit, you know, banks withdrawing from the, from the, from the economy, uh, businesses getting more and more sort of starved of cash. The sort of rates you could command in the private credit space would be really, really interesting. But you just can't, you can't deliver that in a model portfolio that's trying to deliver daily dealing. So you have to, I'm afraid, to, in order to, what you gain in, uh, liquidity, you sort of lose in uh, alternative, less correlated returns. Um, I mean, within the alternative space, it has been a disappointment because you know, you're thinking about listed infrastructure, listed real estate, you know, high correlation to equity. So, you know, whilst the long term diversification benefits are real, the short term ones are not so obvious. I think also what you're looking at are, you know, sort of multi strategy funds, but also. Um, like longshore equity funds. I mean, they're at least now, you know, they're, they're buying some stock and selling some stock. So their net position is, you know, if they give them 100 quid, they'll buy 100 quid's worth of stock and they'll sell 100 quid's worth of stock. Their net position is they've still got 100 quid's worth of cash left over so they can deposit that. And at least these cash rates are giving them something of a tailwind uh, relative to what, what hasn't been there in the past. So uh, we still think they're useful in the context of optimal portfolios but uh, like recognize these as, as both commentators have said these they're not quite as alternative as, as we would like okay thank you can i, um, can I add I, something i, I was just going to th- think like um something that dave was saying was like when you when you're trying to um add so basically we're all trying to find something that can add something different mm-hmm. to the portfolios and specifically with regards to defensive ones it's pretty tricky because you're yeah a lot of a lot of strategies are trying to repackage up different underlying exposures um the one thing that um we felt um has been pretty helpful was having a little bit of um direct commodities exposure within portfolios and even doing that at a small measure so within the defensive strategy. Yeah, sorry, an ETF based on 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 uh, commodity futures, a sort of basket of different commodity futures. Um because the one thing that's going to threaten um a portfolio that's sort of reliant on fixed income and a bit of equity exposure was that was that inflationary impulse. And so the, you try to think about what underlying exposures might benefit from that, um, and commodities have sort of played that role. But you have to be very careful about the sizing because they're obviously quite quite volatile instruments in their own right. And, and is there a liquidity... Um, an illiquidity premium with those, or is liquidity ample in those things? Well, I th- well I, 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 it's not really a liquidity premium. I think you've got to be got to be a little bit careful, just because they don't deliver anything of of their own accord. It's mm-hmm. you're literally capturing a change in price, okay. which is why it's hard to think of having a, a long standing allocation in some in some cases, particularly when you know the funding rates are at five percent, but. Uh, when you're thinking about what they can bring to the overall portfolio, it, they can do something different when other parts are struggling. And so I think that's what makes them attractive. I think you've taken it in a in a very useful direction, actually, there. Because if you think about those low-risk clients right now, you know, what, what are they trying to do? Minimise volatility, beat cash. Now, if we can own, say, short-dated corporate bonds and to pick up a credit risk premium on that you know we can get sort of six or seven quite comfortably without taking a lot of risk but what is the risk going to be in that 
the risk will be that rates push higher and we make a short-term capital loss on the bonds. We're still going to own that return to maturity. How can we hedge that? We can hedge that by owning inflation beneficiary assets such as commodities, such as um, equities. And net, net, you know, if there is a strong economy, inflation persists, those equities will do well. We'll still earn the yield to, to maturity. In fact, we might do better in that environment. In the bearish environment, you know, our commodities will be flat, equities flat sideways. It's, it's hard to believe equities could be flat to sideways for a further three years. But, you know, that, that would be the longest bear market in history. But the bonds will do tremendously well. So net, net again, you're going to be beating cash from here. Which, whichever way you look at the economy, a, a well-constructed defensive portfolio is going to comfortably beat cash across all scenarios if you construct it well. As, as has been mentioned, inflation beneficiary assets to hedge your interest rate sensitive assets. Thank you, uh, David. You, you mentioned um, you mentioned equities there. Uh, and Ben, if in a world where inflation stays persistently higher than the bank's 2% target, what does a cautious equity allocation look like? I say allocation as in that can be as a percentage of an overall multi-asset portfolio or it can be the types of equities within the equity bucket. Well, um Look, if we're in a for a more persistent inflationary environment, you want businesses that have pricing power. Uh, I mean, there are some challenges with that in the short term, in that you know inflationary pressure can lead to more elevated bond yields, and there is this su- suggestion in the marketplace. Certainly, it can happen from time to time that higher bond yields uh, sort of punishes like higher quality businesses, such as sort of U.S. equities. Uh, the loosely defined sort of tech sector. But per- personally, having looked at the data, I don't really see that that stacks up. But so I would have thought higher quality businesses, you know, that's sort of, you know, where do we find the predominance of those? That's in in the US market. So I would have thought in a higher inflation regime, um, it's it's US equities that would be the better long-term hedge uh, against that uh, against that outcome. Thank you. And is it is it a case of in that environment, valuation matters less and quality matters more or resilience quality of the business matters more quality of the earnings and and valuation less uh well i I think you know valuation is important but i would say that yeah the dominant piece is the quality of the business the business to be able to maintain its margins uh deliver on its on its earnings um yeah it's not uh it's it's not for certain that uh higher you know, a higher inflationary regime, you know, a higher interest rate regime, perhaps, you know, more more debt servicing challenges for businesses that more cyclical businesses like banks or whatever, that, that are the, one of the valuation trades would have a would have a better time of it. But these, these are these are marginal calls. You know, I'm not I wouldn't sort of bang the table about it. You know, this this is how we would sort of lean portfolios. I mean, there's certainly an environment where, you know, valuation, as we've seen in 22, could have a have a better time of it. Uh, but to at the margin, I would be leaning into the quality and resilience of earnings in an inflationary environment rather than than, than favouring valuation as a strategy. Thank you. And Ian, how do you how do you think about equity um, exposure at net wealth? Um, well, so so we fundamentally we start with sort of regional building blocks of um, and broadly using ETFs, um, clearly trying to understand what are the drivers of those different markets. So it's not always going to be the region that they're in, but the type of businesses that represent the um, the index themselves. I think the, the the difficult thing for well for everyone really is trying to think about 
what what's going to be different about market behaviour in an environment where inflationary pressure is you know could be higher, certainly more volatile, and what's going to be the same as previous experience. And you know, for the past fifteen years, you've had U.S. large cap equities beating everything else. Mm-hmm. And if if we think about market pricing at the moment, it looks to me as though uh, people think that rates are going to fall away, inflation's going to subside a bit, but earnings growth is still going to be you know reasonably strong, and that sort of taken together sort of screams lovely soft landing, and everything's everything's okay. But you've got to try and think about you know what what could be different and so i think that the 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 question of quality like what what are what earnings can you rely on in the future is going to be really interesting so um is is a market that's pretty pretty boring like the FTSE 100 um with you know high dividend yields um a bit of cyclicality from the underlying sort of corporate exposures i think that's definitely got a role to play um in a in a in a broader equity portfolio and i th- it, it feels it feels to me as though the market sort of is is taking that that notion seriously at the moment. Like we we get asked quite a lot about exposure to UK equities. Um, they've performed broadly in line with the US over the past three years now, as 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 you've gone through a transition of you know, changing future expectations as people start to think about the 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 relevance of of valuation. So valuation and and a bit more cyclicality in earnings, I think, is quite attractive. Thank you. Um, when, when you think about a quality company, does that not necessarily imply a shorter duration um, asset because there's more visibility? Uh, and, and therefore that would be negative for those tech things, which are very long duration? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's the, that's the question. So, so if you're basically the, the decision, it seems to me, for, for equity markets is, is you, how much you're going to build into anything that isn't those, those long, long dated, super... Um, super strong earnings delivery of the US tech sector, and you can either go for for more cyclical businesses that have underperformed for obvious reasons. You can go for more defensive characteristics if if the market changes its mind and starts to think of those uh, longer long term earnings as more as as more uncertain. I do just try and build a bit more of everything into it. Thank you, and David, how how is your uh, how's your um, equity allocation looking right now? I am um, r- relative to where. Uh, relative to, to previous times? Uh, I, I would echo points that have been made already, actually. I, I'm firmly in the higher for longer camp. I think you know we've entered a period where structurally inflation is going to be higher, which would suggest if you, if you look at historic periods of, of relatively high inflation, it would suggest that value as a style would outperform, you know, industrials, companies with hard assets, commodity-related companies, and so on and so forth. And growth would underperform and broadly I, I fundamentally agree with that you know we've got heavy exposure to industrials and materials and energy and so on and so forth but when we think about growth what are we talking about these days because people when when you talk about growth they immediately channel the u.s large cap tech stocks these are not growth stocks these are dominant monopolies and you talked about pricing power. You know, pricing power in an inflation environment is tremendously important. So if you're, you know, think, think about, you know, if you're, you're an online advertiser, who can you buy your advertising from? Two companies. Two companies. Dominant. You know, if you're a, 
you know, across all of these large cap tech areas, Salesforce, Meta, Google, Amazon, so on and so forth, they are dominant monopolies in their industry. So in an inflationary environment, they're set to do tremendously well. They're not really growth stocks. These these are essentially mature monopolies. And mature monopolies are tremendous in an inflationary environment. So I, I wouldn't dismiss them. I would avoid, you know, earnings free. But, but, but uh, is an advertising-led revenue stream quality? Surely that's deeply cyclical. It's cyclical, but if you've got a monopoly, you've got tremendous pricing power. So, yes, we need to accept that they're, they're cyclical. They've seen some ups and downs in their earnings, but the quality of their earnings, they're not going to lose their monopolistic pos- position unless there's regulatory change. I, I think that's really interesting, the way, the way you've seen that this year, mm. the way that they've um, you know smashed the broader US market yeah. out of the park. So this small, small, caps, yeah, small caps everywhere. <laughs> Have come under a lot of pressure because they're just they're more exposed to the funding environment that this inflationary world has has created, um, which I think is going to be yeah a, a very interesting dynamic and I, um, I across think the global market equity markets. Made a mistake earlier this year. So if you look at the way, you know, everybody said inflation is here to stay. This, that, and the other growth will underperform value. If you look at small caps, mid caps, growth has underperformed value. But in large caps, what we define as growth is essentially the big cap monopolies. They benefit from inflation. They're fine. Thank you. Um, and um, Ben, if we, if we start with you for the next one, what role can corporate bonds play in a defensive portfolio? I mean, if short-end govies are, are giving you five, do, do you need to bother with, with, the extra, with the extra credit risk premium of corporate? Well, I mean... We want to be greedy when we can be. You know, clients have, uh, you know, ret- you know, financial... Is that Invesco's new title? Well, no, it's certainly not. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, but like if there's, if there's more return on offer and it's, and it's worth the risk, then, then, then you, you go for it, even if it's, you know, a, mod- a modest amount nominally. Um, but, I mean, that, that's, short-dated corporate bonds look, look, look really interesting. I think the, 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 the risk is, I think has been sort of articulated earlier, is that interest rates move higher and... And, and yields move a little bit uh, higher. You know, short-term calls are a challenge, but, uh, you know, high-quality businesses with lower default rate, um, even in a little growth downturn environment, you know, where the, pre- the spread above, sort of get too technical here, but the sort of the spread above government bonds could move wider, those yields could still be dragged down by government bond yields moving lower. So I think there's a lot of environments where, you know, short, short-term dated corporate bonds Look, look really interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, they're certainly a part of our, our, our model portfolios. And the exposure you have, is that um, investment grade or, or do you go, go as far as high yield? Well, um, it, it sort of depends where you are on the, on the risk spectrum. I think if, you know, if you're going down the lower risk spectrum, you actually have less equities in the portfolio. So there's a little bit more room to, to take corporate risk. Um, and that suggests, you know, room for high yield. But of course, those lower risk clients also have a, you know, less tolerance for losses. So you just have to be careful. So it's investment grade is the, sh- is the short answer. But no doubt, like high yield uh, is interesting. It's just in those lower risk portfolios where you'd like to, you know, work that, uh, that yield that's available. The clients just are a little bit more resistant uh, and, and quite rightly, given their, fin- their, their financial needs and, and, and goals, you know, t- to take that risk. But, uh, you know, if, if investment grade bonds do well, it's likely that high yield bonds are doing well as well. Thank you. And 
Ian, how do you think about corporate bond exposure right now? Um, yes, yeah, so, well, so down at the more risk-averse end of the spectrum, so we, we run risk profiles of, of, of strategies down at the, the lower end of the uh, risk spectrum. We have an allocation to short-dated, you know, decent quality corporates, um, a bit of short-dated um, gilts as well, because we think those yields are attractive. Um, and we offset that with a little bit of equity equity risk as well. Um, and that's been generally our, our our overall approach, you know, since since uh, since launch. The I, I do think uh, I read something uh, a couple of weeks ago though, which really challenged that, which was a piece by Howard Marks, who's just basically basically choosing this moment to say this time is different, mm-hmm. which is you know something that a lot of us are always very cautious about about saying, but just saying that if you calling into question what what a cautious investor is looking for so if you think that you can get nine percent yields on high yield um, bonds admitting that you're you're straying into weak quality companies but enjoying the fact you're higher up in the capital structure why don't you just convert all of your portfolio into that one asset class because you you are you are lending uh, the the money to someone else and expecting to receive it back through time and get enough of that money back enough of that 9% probably to meet the returns expectations of a cautious investor the problem of course is that it doesn't take into account the time horizon that you're that you're looking at so so the 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 attractive part of short dated high quality corporates is that you is not just the quality but you're going to get your money back a little bit sooner. And if then you can balance that with a bit more sort of upside from from from, from equities, then that to us still makes more sense. Thank you, Ian. Um, David, both both Ian and Ben have, have referenced the yield available on, on corporate bonds right now, and, and those numbers nominally sound very, very nice, but if set against the prevailing inflation rate, I mean, they're... It's positive, real, but but is it is it still worth worth owning corporate for that little bit of extra positive uh, real yield? Oh, I th- I, th- I think so very much so, and and you know echoing what's been said, the issue you have with your low risk investor is he's sort of comparing you with cash, and from his point of view, path matters at least as much as destination. So I can sit here and say, look, you know, I can construct you a portfolio. I could use high yield and and we can get, you know, very close to double digit into double digit if we're prepared to swallow deep in in high yield. And I can make the argument that over, you know, if you're buying very short dated high yield, your probability of default is very, very low as a general rule. But if I buy that asset, I know that, you know, as the market swings between higher inflation and recession and this, that and the other, I'm going to get near term capital volatility. And that's what these low risk clients don't like. So, you know, to what I have to balance is I want to construct this portfolio for a client with a three year view who wants to beat cash by it as much as is realistic. At the same time, he expects his journey to be very smooth. So I need these overall portfolios to come out with very low volatility. So Howard Marks's point is is valid, but it's incorrect because he's not understanding the needs of the client. And the, the, the client has the, the common need of both beating inflation over time 
but low volatility on the journey. That's where the, your short-dated corporates come in because, you know, the spreads and rates are negatively correlated to some degree, you know, that equitiness of corporates. And so with very short-dated corporates, you do get the, you know, if you're in the investment grade at the top end, you're getting 200, 250 over at the moment. And, and that's, a, that's a really nice return above seven, in a very low risk asset with a duration of sub three, balance that with a little bit of equities and, and real assets along the side. And, and you, you've got a very nice baked in return at the moment. You don't need to swallow hard and go into high yield. Yeah, I mean, you could tickle a little bit in there at the bottom of the portfolio, but, but why would you need it? I don't think you need it. If you want equity volatility, buy some low risk equity. Thank you for that, David. Uh, Jane, multi-asset uh, investor at Premier Mighton, and thank you to Ian Barnes, Chief Investment Officer at NetWealth, and Ben Guttridge, Director of the Model Portfolio Service at Invesco, for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.